Life in Accounting, the Where Accountants Go podcast. Life in Accounting is the podcast for everyday heroes like you working in the accounting profession. Are you ready to hear from accounting influencers, thought leaders, visionaries, and other professionals leading change in the accounting world? Then stay tuned for Mark Goldman, a CPA, the owner of Where Accountants Go, and your host. Welcome to Life in Accounting. Accounting practices are very valuable and they will sell. Hello everyone, I'm Mark Goldman, a CPA and your host for Life in Accounting, the Where Accountants Go podcast. As you can tell, this episode is going to be different from our typical shows in a few ways actually. First of all, for the first time in several months, we have two guests on the line. We have both David Sweeten, CPA, and Eric Arroyo, MBA, from Business Brokers of Texas. And secondly, we're going to talk a little bit about their careers on the front end, but most of this episode is devoted to exploring the process of buying or selling an accounting practice, or at least a book of business from an accountant. This topic has come up several times in the last year and a half, probably from half a dozen guests at least, so I figured it would be good to dedicate an episode specifically to exploring this topic further. I learned quite a bit on this episode, and I hope you do as well. It's definitely an interesting area and very pertinent to us accountants. If you enjoyed this episode, please visit our website for all our previous episodes, as well as a job board for the Texas area and links to all the prevalent certifications in the accounting world. That site is whereaccountantsgo.com. Once again, it's whereaccountantsgo.com. With that, let's go ahead and get started. Here's David Sweeten and Eric Arroyo of Business Brokers of Texas. Well, hello, David and Eric. Thank you so much for joining us on the show today. I appreciate you being willing to share your insight with us. And and frankly, I'm looking forward to learning quite a bit myself today. So thank you for being here. We appreciate you asking us to be here. Thanks for having us. No problem. Well, for our audience, we have David Sweeten, CPA, and Eric Arroyo, MBA, on the show today from Business Brokers of Texas. I became acquainted with David and Eric actually through my involvement with the CPA Society, and I've been trying to coordinate a time with them to come on the show to share their insights with us on both buying and selling an accounting firm, and frankly, businesses in general. Although it's been a few months, you may remember we've had several guests on the show mention that they acquire practices as a way of starting or growing their own. We had Dale Ross up in Georgetown mention it, uh, Deborah Seafield in Houston, and actually both Derek Shriver and Chris Carmona, partners, mentioned acquiring two practices, I believe. So I figured it would be valuable if we could get some advice from true experts in the field on how to handle those types of transactions and what pitfalls you want to avoid and just in general what to look for. So David and Eric, this is going to be a little different than our typical episodes, but I'd still like to get some background information from you guys for the audience's sake so they know you know, where you're coming from. Tell us a little bit about your background prior to getting into the business brokerage field. And then if we could, you know, from there transition to how you moved into that type of business. Where'd you guys get your start? Well, this is Eric. I'll start. After I received my MBA from University of Chicago, I was working for a public company and we were acquired by Sun Company, the oil company. And from there, 
I participated with them in a division they set up to acquire 14 companies in total outside of the energy business. I had the opportunity to go in and run one of those companies and at that point stayed in general management capacity either as the chief operating officer or general manager for public or private companies, primarily in distribution and manufacturing. I also had a three-year stint as a financial advisor and three years as a management consultant traveling internationally. So what brought me here was my company at the time in Chicago was acquired, and I looked for a small company here in San Antonio. David happened to have one, and interestingly enough, my first lesson in the small business arena was that the owner decided two weeks before closing that she really didn't want to sell the company. David and I had gotten to know each other very well. I was very comfortable with David's approach to the whole process, so I've been working with David since 2006. Interesting. So you've been on the other side of the table. <laughs> In a Both couple sides, of really. Both sides. Yes. Wow. How about you, David? Well, I got out of Baylor by accident, I think. Somehow I got out, got an accounting degree in a firm called Ernst & Ernst. I think now is Ernst & Young. They hired me, I believe, because I was a baseball player and they had a good softball team. So I stayed in public accounting either in Houston or in San Antonio with Canero Chumney. I was in public accounting about 15 years. I got the privilege of working at Merrill Lynch for four or five years in financial planning. So did some executive level finance work with the Rudy's Barbecue here. And I had about a 10-year career in oil and gas drilling and exploration. There were other things in the middle, but uh, I've got a pretty very broad background. In fact, one of the local CPAs once asked me how I ever became a CPA, and I just said, I just kept taking it till I passed it. So that's kind of my story. There you go. That's interesting. I didn't know both of you have background in financial planning and then actually oil and gas. That's intriguing. Huh. Very exciting back in the 80s. <laughs> yeah, I guess so. A lot going on back then. Yep. Back then. So how did you get into the business broker business, David? Well, it was sort of by accident. I was working for a real estate firm in San Antonio and it's a big firm and the managing partner there brought me in a binder on business brokerage and I got to reading about it. And it intrigued me because I had a strong financial background. I like selling things and helping people buy things. So that's where it started. When was that? Ballpark. That ballpark, that was uh, over 20 years ago. Oh, my gosh. Okay. So you've been doing this for a while. Yes. I actually sold my first business formally in 1980 in Houston. Okay. And, Eric, how long have you been partnered with David? 2006. Again, that acquisition that didn't follow through. We decided to get together and work together, and so we've been working on selling companies since then. So 12 okay. years. Yeah, 12 years. Okay. Okay. Well, why don't we start with what are your thoughts or what advice would you have for a potential buyer when they're looking at a practice or a book of business to acquire? What are some of the first things that they should consider? Well, that's a pretty long list. See, most CPAs are not necessarily sales-oriented. They are service-oriented, understand numbers, and are typically very technical. So, you know, you can say, well, do I buy a practice or do I build a practice? I built a practice in Houston, uh, and it was hard, but I built one and sold it. But I think a CPA that wants to get into a, their own public accounting practice needs to definitely 
think about many things, and we can get into the, to a lot of those details, such as, you know, do I build it from scratch or do I buy one? Well, I think you ought to look at buying it because it's just better. It's easier to do because uh, you're more service-oriented. And then you could say, okay, what do you have to look out for? Well, the things you need to look out for are simple things. Frankly, what's the age of the seller? Are you people compatible age-wise, uh, buyer and seller? Is the accounting and tax software, is it compatible? What about the geographic area of the, of the practice you're buying? Is, is it compatible with the kind of client that you want to acquire? What type of clients do you want? Do you want a lot of 1040s or corporate work? Do you want more bookkeeping versus audit or tax? That becomes very, very important in the valuation of the practice. Also, monthly, quarterly, or annual fees. How much gross income is out there that you're looking to acquire? So there's a lot of things to consider in thinking about buying or selling a practice. You know, the age of the seller and the compatibility, that's interesting because I guess I was thinking about it from, you know, someone being in their 60s, you know, maybe a little younger, maybe a little older, selling a practice to someone that maybe is in their 30s. You're describing a little different picture, correct? Well, to some degree. But in most cases, if someone is selling a practice, the last two or three that we've sold here in the last year, these were sold by people that are individuals that had an interest in some form of retirement or they were just tired of running the business. That happens. You see that in all kinds of businesses. You get, you know, disabilities, divorces, deaths, disinterest. That comes up. But let's say you did have a practice person that was 65, 70, 80 years old. You just need to look at the makeup of the clientele that they're selling because it could be the second generation or the kids, you know, their original clients. So, just need to look and be sure that everybody that you're buying is not about to retire. You don't want to buy a practice that would not have the kind of clients that you as a buyer would want to acquire. Okay. I see what you mean. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah, I understand what you're saying about the benefits of acquiring a practice because then it immediately puts us in mode of doing what we do best, you know, servicing, as opposed to trying to force ourselves into sales mode. Tell us about some of the other pitfalls, though. If you are going to acquire a practice, what else should they be looking at? Well, obviously, the key in a practice is who do you retain? If you buy a practice and you don't retain a large enough percentage of the clients, then obviously you've paid too much for that practice. So you need to work out seriously up front a smooth transition plan between the buyer and the seller. I mean, it's just it's literally that simple. I mean, and how do you do that? What does that mean? Typically, that means you work out a workload definition during the first tax season, a workload definition after the first tax season. You work in a retention-type formula. We do that all the time, or that's what Eric and I do, is we come up with a retention formula so that the buyer is really comfortable and so is the seller. What does the seller want? The seller wants cash. What does the buyer want? They want to pay less cash. So somehow you work that out and you built in the retention formula in there so that each side is happy with that. We often tell both buyers and sellers that we view our one of our main functions to avoid problems is to make sure that the deal is good for both parties. That seems self-evident, but there are obviously points in the process where things have to be negotiated, and we like them to understand that we can help them avoid a potential problem if we are in the middle of it and can add some objectivity to it. 
Okay. Yeah, I'm curious about the retention. My father was a CPA and had a small practice, and I remember how relationship-based it was. Do you have any you know, basic guidelines for what someone can expect or a range percentage-wise for what someone can expect to retain? You know, 80% of the clients, 60% of the clients. Or any, do you have any guidelines? In most cases, you can retain a, a large percentage, and I'm talking 80 to probably 90, 95%, if the transition between buyer and seller to accountants is a smooth one. Because frankly, the clients, they just want good service. And if the selling CPA helps in that transition, there's a really good chance that you could, you know, retain the vast majority of the clients. Okay. That's a lot higher than I thought. But Well, I think you could retain 100%. Nobody can get 100 But in most cases, if the buyer and the seller get along, and you make a good transition, the client just wants a good tax return or audit or bookkeeping done. And if they're happy that first go-round, I think you'll keep, you know, I could say probably over 90%. Okay. Well, yeah, that makes sense. I understand what you're saying. Clients just want good service. And as long as that's being provided, it's actually the path of least resistance for them to stay with you. Yeah. Okay. In having this discussion, are there any, you know, stories that go through your mind of acquisitions that just are transactions, if you will, on your side of, that just went really well? And if so, you know, what are some of the factors you think that led to that? Primarily just for the buying and selling of accounting practices. That's what we mostly want to talk about, I'd guess. If you have an example in that area, but if not, general business is fine as well. I have sold, let's say, half a dozen accounting and bookkeeping practices, and they all, every one has gone well, and we've done every one of them inside of about 90 days from time we listed the or took the engagement on until we actually closed the transaction. So I would tell everybody that's trying to sell, you need to figure it's going to take nine months to a year just so you're prepared because you never know how much due diligence the other side may want to do. But trying to answer the question I think that you asked me was that I've always, or Eric and I have always been able to put the right buyers and sellers together. So we don't end up in a bidding war with a bunch of people that are just trying to acquire something. They want to get into something where they change their life. So how do you do that? You put the right people together and you do the right thing and it just works out. We're very good at structuring deals. If there's outside financing needed, we can get that. We talk to the seller continually about how much they've got to carry back in the deal. See, a seller needs to sell or finance a big portion of the transaction or the buyer will be uncomfortable. We like to stay, frankly, like to stay out of the banks if we can. You know, an example of that, just to reinforce what David just said, is that one of the best processes we had was the sale of a medical equipment distributor that literally owned the market for his product in Texas. And he offered, it was a $3 million transaction, a fair price, and he offered $2 $2 million of seller financing, and the buyer was perfect, uh, PhD. He had a million dollars. He could roll in from a 401k, and the deal went about as smoothly as possible. And I followed up about a year and a half later with the buyer, and I was amazed to find he had already sold the company to a manufacturer. So that would be the example of a well-functioning transaction. and. Seller financing often makes all the difference. Huge difference. 
But you okay. could have a bad situation could be that you haven't looked in depth into the type of accounting or tax software, and you could have a big transition issue. How do you get the accounts, the tax forms, and everything transitioned over? So you've got to be sure that you're compatible. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. That makes it a lot smoother for the clients as well. Yep. Sure. Right. What mistakes have you seen buyers make when they're looking to acquire a book of business or a practice? Maybe against y'all's better judgment, things you've seen people do. <laughs> well, you know, I've mentioned most of the good stuff. If you reverse that and simply say, okay, you know, I bought a practice that's located south of San Antonio and I live on the north side and I didn't think about people not being willing to drive. 35 or 40 miles, that could be a mistake. Another mistake is you don't build in a retention clause. A retention clause is something like, okay, you agree to pay a price for a firm. That price can be anywhere from, let's say, three-quarters or 75% of one-year sales up to even two times one-year sales. It just depends on the nature of, of the practice that you're buying. So you got to be sure you've got a retention clause in there that enables the seller to get a little more than that price if a certain percentage or a certain collection volume over, say, two or three years occurs. So, you know, that keeps them engaged. Even if they're not working for you, the new firm, they stay engaged in keeping the people coming to your house to get their tax work or their audit work done. Okay. So I'm going to, I hate the term, but play devil's advocate a little bit. So I'm a CPA. You know, we all have had a few courses in business law pass the exam. I'm certainly incapable of writing up a contract. Maybe even I understand a little bit about valuation. What are some of the benefits or the value add that a service like yours brings in and over what just a typical CPA, you know, would do if they were acquiring their own practice? That could take us an hour to explain it, but we'll break it down (laughs) into just a few minutes because I think like You've always heard the expression, you know, if the lawyer represents himself, he's got a fool for a client. Uh, I think the same thing goes for buying or selling your own accounting practice. There's so many things that a knowledgeable brokerage firm like ours could do to make sure, one, what do you want out of the deal? You want the most money in the shortest amount of time. That typically makes most sellers happy. So, you know, what would a broker do? Well, A lot of things we do, we maintain the confidentiality of the transaction. We understand valuations, especially goodwill, which is the whole nuts and bolts of an accounting practice. You probably would understand most tax issues, but if you don't, we've got knowledge of that. We have market knowledge. We're experienced in selling CPA firms and other businesses. And one real key point is you, the seller, get to keep running your business. We allow you that flexibility. We control all the issues. We maintain objectivity and control the emotions that flow through both sides of the transaction. Mm. So in a nutshell, I think don't worry about paying a fee to sell your practice because if you finance the deal, we'll factor in an interest rate that over time will typically will pay our fee on the, you know, on the backside over the next three to five years. Hmm. I hadn't thought about that aspect of it. Okay. What do you find are some of the You already hit on this a little bit, but what do you find are some of the misconceptions that people have about how a broker works? This is a different profession than most people think of a residential real estate broker. And uh, in that case, of course, the seller pays a fee. We obviously have a fee schedule and the seller pays the fee. But 
There is a lot more effort and analysis required with a business transaction than with a real estate transaction. One of the misconceptions is that, well, you know, I'll just hire you. You start showing my business. Well, you don't show a business because obviously of the confidentiality involved. So we handle 80% of what has to happen in order to sell a practice or a business. It's only when we have a valid buyer who's qualified that we actually involve the seller. Okay. Okay. Well, that makes sense. I'm a believer in hiring the expert, you know, to handle something as opposed to, you know, the do-it-yourself model. So I can agree. I can understand that definitely. So how do buyers best interact with you guys? Do you, if I want to buy a practice or a book of business, do I just wait to see a listing that you guys may have on the internet or is there, you know, some type of registration process on the buyer side? How does that work? In most cases, we find our buyers in three or four different sources. We've got like in accounting practices, we've got a number of prior interested buyers have approached us about, you know, if we ever have a practice for sale, would you let us know? So that's where we would start. Number two, we would advertise on the various Internet sites, but we would not define who the firm was or necessarily where it was geographically located other than to say, okay, we've got an accounting practice in South Central Texas for sale and just Maybe put a rough sales volume. That's what most businesses like that tend to be sold based upon is the sales volume. And then we've got prior buyers of ours that we've had that might have an interest in an accounting practice. So we, we've got big networking groups. We're both in, we probably between us, we probably have four or five different networking groups that people always are looking for things to buy, including accounting practices. So it's a multifaceted approach. Okay. You know, going back to the early conversation we had about the benefit of acquiring a practice, you, you basically said that it puts us in the service mode instead of you know having to be in sales mode first. What are some of the other benefits you think of acquiring a book of business as opposed to you know just going out there and build it on my own, David? Because it sounds like you had some other thoughts there when we were talking. The main one is why would you buy a practice? Well, you think about well, I want to buy a practice because I want to make more money. Okay. You buy a book of business, you have an existing, let's say you have an existing practice that tends to generate $20,000, a month on average, and you pay, you know, let's say the value of that practice, let's say it's $300,000 value, and you could buy it for maybe a hundred to 125 down, and you finance the rest of it over terms. So you have an instant, typically, an instant cash flow, albeit focused on tax season and, you know, if it's a tax practice. But you use leverage. And then what you've done is you've bought something that should last you and grow for the rest of your business existence. So I just think buying a practice is absolutely the best way to go. The risk is not that great if you do the right form of retention, meaning you keep the older or retiring person involved. And that's easy to do. I mean, we find it easy to do. Okay. What types of situations have you seen where buyers are not able to go through with a transaction that they wanted to go through with? Other than financing, I guess, of course, that's sort of an obvious, but any other situations where they just weren't prepared? And- Very specific. I've got, you know, I think this is a huge, albeit danger for buyers. Buyers have got to know 
that somebody else is looking at that business. So some buyers, and I've had this happen numerous times, they think they're smarter than everybody else. They think that I can buy this for X percent of sales, when in reality that's not going to happen and it gets sold out from under them. So a buyer has got to realistically go into this with their eyes open and have some knowledge of what a practice will typically sell for, and they've got to be committed to do the deal. Because they, accounting practices are very valuable and they will sell. So the early person in the morning does get the worms in most cases. So I just think you need to be ready to go. Hmm. There's also during, you know, the experience we've acquired, you learn in dealing with people to be able to evaluate their motivations and really determine who's a valid buyer and not a valid buyer. And that's one of the major benefits we offer because we have so much experience. We know what to expect from a valid buyer. And if we don't see those exhibited by someone interested in one of the businesses, we'll press them to make sure, if we're right, that we eliminate them as a potential candidate, not to waste time. The most serious buyers that I have seen, the deal happens quickly. I'm talking about you get a letter of intent within a week, and you've got dates and times and amounts, and now it can have another month or two to close the transaction. But somebody that's serious, they move quickly. I think that's very important to, to understand that. Okay. So I can't contact you guys, get a little information on a practice, particularly an accounting or bookkeeping practice, and then expect to think about it for two or three months and contact you back and for it still to be on the market. You can do that, but it'll be gone. (laughs) There you go. Okay. We're getting close to wrapping it up. There's a few final questions, but before we get to that, I, I was sort of curious because you both have interesting backgrounds prior to doing this and a lot more than I realized. I don't know you know, who wants to go first here, but how do you feel, whoever's more comfortable, of course, going first, but how do you feel your previous background has helped you, you know, bring value to clients? You know, you, David, as being a former accountant and then you, Eric, you know, going through acquisitions yourself and being in general management, how do you feel that sort of uniquely qualified you to do what you do now? This is David. From my perspective, the accounting background, being a CPA and working in public accounting and private industry is absolutely the most important thing I've ever done as it relates to any sale I've ever made because you know how to read a balance sheet. You can look at income statements. I've done taxes before, so I know how people put things in their returns that might not be appropriate to the new buyer. I just think having an accounting background or an MBA is just and experience gives you invaluable experience. And during my tenure in a corporate position, especially with public companies, there was always a lot of scrutiny about the operation, and you really have to learn how to understand financials and interrelationship, cash flow. A lot of interesting, in general, I'm not talking about CPAs now, but in general, some of the people we encounter as business buyers don't have that background. And we can help them understand more by working through with them the financial statements if they don't have, you know, a CPA that they're using. We always advise in any transaction, you consult with your CPA, consult with your attorney, where we can tell you how the process works and work with you. But if you have specific questions related to your situation, then you should be consulting your CPA or attorney. Okay. Beautiful. Thank you. 
Well, I end every podcast with the same three questions, and I thought about deviating from it this time just because I knew the episode was going to be a little different. But honestly, I hate to, and I think it's still applicable. So first question I usually ask is, what has been your proudest moment in business? But what has been your proudest moment? This is Eric. I mentioned that I transitioned into general management after we were acquired by Sun Company two years after running the subsidiary in Cincinnati, the president and executive vice president flew in so that I could showcase my business and my staff to them. My boss, the president of our group, picked three companies out of the 14, and mine was one of them, and that was a very proud moment. Hmm. What about you, David? Well... This is a good news, kind of bad news deal, but my proudest moment was a friend of mine from my Baylor days in the 60s. I had an advertising firm to sell, and I found a a very qualified person to buy it. But during the process of what I would call due diligence, my seller ended up with a serious medical condition and literally never got out of the hospital. And I worked very closely with my buyer and seller. We actually did training, due diligence work, you know, learning the business while in the hospital, in recovery rooms. It was an amazing process. And the buyer was comfortable. And the seller thought he was going to get out of the hospital because, you know, he had great hope. Anyway, in the end, we closed the transaction in the hospital. The lawyer and all the paperwork, we did it there. My buyer took over and is still running the business today successfully. But my seller never got out of the hospital. And it's just one of those deals that, I guess it was just meant to be, but it was a large transaction that occurred, and he passed on but left behind in his estate a large sum of money. So that was, to me, was my proudest moment. Wow. I'm sure his family was appreciative. Wow. They were very much appreciative. Well, second question, and if this is a mutual story, that's fine, or separate stories are fine as well. Tell us about a mistake you've made and what you learned from it, of course, because that's the valuable part. But frankly, the bigger, the better. I'll start with a million-dollar mistake. Ooh, Uh, okay. We recently had a business under contract, a commitment letter from the bank to loan. It was a million-dollar deal, loan what was needed. The appraisals on the real estate and the business came in above the value that had been negotiated. And we were working on a closing date. And then two days before closing... We received a letter from the bank saying they were rescinding their commitment letter, that they liked the deal, but they didn't like the buyer. And it turns out that the buyer had a felony in his record from about 20 years ago. And that was enough for the bank to back away. So the question I didn't ask is, do you have a felony on your record, is one that I will ask in the future. Interesting. And we checked that out. We tried to, you know... Through a simple source and nothing showed up, but in the end, it was there, and there'd been an arrest way back when. And wow! It was a deal killer. Wow! On a, another deal that Eric and I both worked on, this was a fifty million dollar oil and gas transaction here in Texas in, in two thousand and thirteen, and we were asked to find a buyer, which we went out onto the private equity market. We found a buyer that offered ninety percent upfront in cash. So it was a $45 million cash, $5 million in, in a note. And I guess the mistake was on the front end. We did not tell all of the sellers. There was 
five or six sellers, but we got them all to sign off in the front end, but we did not let them know that their heirs, if they had any, even though they weren't owners, that were working in the business would have to sign a non-compete agreement. That was going to be a condition. It was a condition of the sellers, but it actually should have been made more clear up front that it was also a condition of one had a son that was in the business that demanded once we let the fox into the hen house or we let the buyer go work in the business for a while, the son knew he had some leverage and he had some hidden agendas and he demanded 20% of the deal or he was not going to sign the non-compete. And in the end, a week before closing on a $50 million deal, the buyer decided they were going to wait a while. And it went away and that was a big, big loss for this end because they eventually sold it to somebody else through that son and received about, we understand, about 15 or $20 million less than what we had it sold for. Mm. There are a lot of moving parts. There, there, there are. are a ton of moving parts. <laughs> That's why you need a broker in the middle of this so you don't get killed <laughs> taking too yeah. little or, or too long. Wow. Well, last question, and then we'll go ahead and close it down. What has been the best piece of advice that you've ever received? Well, this is Eric. I once worked in corporate capacity with a very famous consultant. He earned about $10,000 a day fee to consult. And in one of our meetings, someone asked him, what do you need to really make a business successful? And he gave a very simple answer, one that I didn't expect. He said, first, you need a dreamer, someone with a vision, someone who can see the business in the future. Then you need, with that dreamer, a business person, a practical person, someone who can put plans into action. And finally, someone to take a look at every situation and, you know, judge it very objectively and make the hard decisions when they need to be made. And that was his advice. I think that's wow. very good advice. This is David. What I would, I would agree with that 100%. But what I've learned in my career is that what separates the human race, I think, from say animals is that our instincts and our intuition is all that really differentiates us. And if something in your gut is telling you that it doesn't feel good, doesn't make sense, then you have to walk away. Don't override your own instincts or intuition. The deal's not worth doing. There you go. Beautiful. Well, thank you, guys. That's really good advice to end this on. Thank you. Thank you very much. You're very welcome. You're very welcome. Well, for our audience, this has been another episode of Life in Accounting, the Where Accountants Go podcast. If you haven't yet visited our home website, please do so. You can find the show notes for each and every episode, including this one, of course. That website is whereaccountantsgo.com. And also, we have links to all the accounting-related certifications there, including review courses that you may want to consider. So once again, that's whereaccountantsgo.com. On that note, David and Eric, if people want to get in touch with you for more information, what's the best way to do that? I would say two ways. One, the phone number. It's area code 210-697-8760. Once again, it's 210-697-8760. Or we have a website, www.brokersoftexas.com. B-R-O-K-E-R-S-O-F-T-E-X-A-S.com brokersoftexas.com and that'll get us. Well, thank you again to the audience for joining us. We will see everyone next week. There's more to come.